This is AutoLine This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, John McElroy here. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine This Week. Today's topic hydrogen and fuel cells. You know, hydrogen's sort of been talked about as the fuel of the future and always will be, but maybe we're getting to the point now where it's really going to become a reality. We've got automakers such as Hyundai and Toyota and Honda who already market fuel cell cars in the U.S., although that's relegated only to the California market. But countries such as South Korea, Japan, and China are investing heavily in hydrogen and fuel cells. And we've got an expert to bring us up to speed with where that's all going. Brian Pivovar is a senior research fellow at the National Renewable Energy Lab. And Brian, great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're going to get into this uh, uh, with two of my colleagues, Bob Gritzinger from Ward's Intelligence and Frank hey, Marcus John. from Motor Trend. Hello, everyone. Frank, Bob, good to have you guys here, too. Good to be here. Absolutely. So, Brian, you, you heard me sort of introduce this. Are, are we possibly hitting a tipping point with fuel cells and hydrogen? Yeah, and, and what we are. Um, I would say the last six months was basically a tipping point for hydrogen. And what's really changed is, is that it had been that fuel cells were trying to drag hydrogen forward. And going forward, it's actually hydrogen that's going to create a wave that's going to help bring fuel cells forward. And it's not... It had always been driven by the light duty vehicle industry. And now other applications are actually showing how important they're going to be for the evolving energy system. And that will help pull along the light duty segment. It's all connected and light duty doesn't go without heavy duty and um, industrial uses. But when all of them start to come forward and hydrogen starts to become readily available, one of the biggest challenges for light duty vehicles has been the infrastructure for hydrogen. And we understand better now that the infrastructure is going to exist. And once hydrogen's ubiquitous and um, lower cost, it will be much easier for the light duty vehicle segment to take advantage of that as well. So it's a really complex equation where a bunch of things are going forward. Um, but for years, um, I've been doing this for 25 years. When I started my thesis work on this, my graduate school roommate said, you're, you chose the perfect profession because it'll always be five or 10 years away. And five or 10 years ago became, it actually was five or 10 years ago away. So it's an exciting time for me and it's an exciting time for hydrogen. Uh, devil's advocate or, or something here. I totally get the heavy truck usage. It makes all sorts of sense for tr trucks that are going across country, pull into a giant depot with a big hydrogen storage system, download you know, the hydrogen, keep going. I have a lot more trouble seeing it make sense to have little hydrogen stations all over the place for cars to come in and get something, especially given the fact that batteries are getting so much better. We're just around the corner from, you know, solid state and some of these things that I think range anxiety is going away from little cars. It just doesn't work on big trucks. Your response and, to that. And I didn't want to pretend that so battery vehicles are great and battery vehicles are going to play a huge role in the light duty market. It's, it's not that hydrogen will be everything in the light duty market and there won't be batteries. There's really just a question of what fraction of the light duty market will be serviced by hydrogen in which ways. And so there's things about um, pickup trucks that drag trailers 
there's um, fleet vehicles that operate 24 seven or need to be refueled. And then there's a question about how transportation maybe as a service or as a system works in the future and, and how drive cycles might work and how you may want to deploy vehicles and, and if personal ownership changes. So there's a lot of questions in the light duty market and I'm, the, the advances in batteries have been amazing and they're going to push this and they're way closer to the technology readiness level. But in the longer term, how the battery and the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle split in that light duty market will is still to be determined at some level. But batteries have the advantage of being here today. And, and, right. and the advance has been great. Right. But electric vehicles uh, being part of driving that trend towards a more uh, uh, easy refueling through hydrogen. Um, I mean, yeah, our light duty numbers at Ward's Intelligence put uh, um, fuel cell vehicles at just 36, maybe 37,000 out to 2032, 0.22% of the light duty market. But to your point, um, the, the commercial sector is what can drive this infrastructure forward. Um, but there are others that are suggesting a completely different um, approach. Uh, I talked to the CEO of Hyperion. You familiar with them? The thousand mile hypercar. Now the car is just window dressing. What the company is really about is developing small um, standalone wind or solar powered electrolysis generator um, hydrogen fueling stations that they say they're going to announce in the first quarter of this year that are you know, sort of budget friendly compared to the existing fueling stations. Have you heard about that, Brian? I, I haven't, but there's so many things going on all the time in this space that it's almost impossible for even the best experts to stay abreast of everything that's happening. I mean, we have to have those because we know at Wards, we, we test best propulsion systems and we've put a fuel cell vehicle on our list going back to 2015. But uh, every time we have one, there's one fueling station at the company somewhere, you know, 30 miles away. So it's, it's the fueling is the issue. And Brian, what's your uh, take on how distribution is going to look going forward? Are we going to pipe or tanker the hydrogen or going to make it on site, uh, crack it or whatever? So, so, so all of the above. Um, is, is what I would say. So, so one of the complexities and one of the challenges for hydrogen is how difficult and complex it interacts is. So the fact that it can be done in multiple ways is a benefit in a lot of cases, but it also makes interpreting how this works much more challenging. So in places where hydrogen pipelines exist, it's great. And one of the analogs I always draw is, is that hydrogen is, is just as difficult as natural gas. And so there's CNG vehicles as well as there's hydrogen vehicles. They're very similar in terms of the challenges of handling them as fuels and distributing them. However, with natural gas, we have a trillion dollar infrastructure that's been built up to move it around. And there's things like transitioning the natural gas system to take hydrogen in it and then separating it back out or developing parallel pathways. But in the short term, right now it's compressed gas. It's going to go liquefied um, because of the energy density issues. And eventually there's gonna be pipelines. And the pipelines are going to eventually happen. It might not be quite as um, expansive as today's natural gas system, but they'll, you know, at 2050, there'll be a hydrogen infrastructure 
that looks like a natural gas infrastructure. Um, and it won't just be here, it'll be everywhere basically. And the economies that haven't developed good natural gas systems yet may have an advantage in, in basically bypassing them and going directly to hydrogen. The difference I see though is, I mean, natural gas are these big, long, you know, complex chains that are hard to slip out of a leak. Uh, hydrogen is the tiniest atom, uh, the tiniest molecule in the, in the universe. And so the losses that I can imagine on a distributed natural gas type network would have to be staggering. And given that there's kind of a lot of energy to isolate hydrogen to begin with, I start to worry about the carbon footprint or the energy usage uh, by the time we get it down to the end user with all the losses. So, so there's you know 1,600 miles of hydrogen pipeline that exists today um, in the US and there's geological storage like salt domes so there's places where these things exist and people understand how to do them. All gas lines and leaks are, are issues, but the greenhouse gas footprint of leaking methane is huge and hydrogens doesn't exist. So there's about a three times difference in permeability. So you may lose about three times as much hydrogen. You, you wouldn't want to necessarily odorize it the same way. There's all these issues about how CO detectors would detect hydrogen, but you probably wouldn't bring the hydrogen into your house. You'd probably use something like these NFARM units where there's a quarter million of them in Japan, where they basically do your electricity and hot water and, and space heating all at the house. And that's important at some level because when you think about a power plant, it's um, you know about 40% to 60% efficient. And the rest of that energy is all dumped as heat where the electricity is being made. But if you can bring this fuel to the houses and use it for space heating, you start to get like 90% efficiencies out of those fuels instead of 60 or, or, or less. And so, so there's all of these different pieces that fit in about how hydrogen works and how it fits into the chain. And a lot of this is not being actually driven by the automotive sector, but it's driven by these other areas and coupling to wind and solar where hydrogen allows us to basically do two things to go cross sector with our energy, and then also to um, time shift and use um, clean and efficient processes at the end. Brian, go a little bit more into the carbon footprint of pure battery electric versus uh, hydrogen fuel cell, because this is one of the, the criticisms that the EV crowd says. You know, you gotta generate electricity and then you've gotta use that for electrolysis to make hydrogen. So it's an entire extra step compared to just taking electricity and putting it in a battery. But as you know, sending electricity along power lines, there's there's loss there. There's loss putting it through a, a converter to get it into the battery. More loss is getting it out of the inverter again to make power. But just just talk about that carbon footprint comparison between the two. So, so batteries are gonna be more efficient. Um, however, there's a number of places where that starts to fall short. And if we're talking about using these things off of today's grid and you have a fossil-based grid, both of them have reasonable carbon footprints. Um, and the footprint for the batteries would be less because of the efficiency being higher. However, the electricity is only available when it's there and the hydrogen can be stored as a fuel much more easily. So electric lines are just transmission lines, whereas hydrogen pipelines are storage and transmission. And so what happens is there's this big factor on capacity. And what's happening is with wind and solar, which is what we envision as being a large part of allowing for a much greener um, grid and a greener planet, 
But the grid isn't actually the most important reason to have cleaner processes. It's actually urban areas where air quality is, is a big deal. So a lot of this gets focused on um, just the climate impacts. But truthfully, the air quality impacts are just as large. And where we have power plants, they're not actually where people live. They tend to be outside of urban centers where we have to drive and we have to do industry where people are. And so cleaning up the cities is a real big issue for this. And so the carbon footprint is another issue along these lines in that batteries, the nominal value of electricity is becoming less and less as solar and wind get cheaper and cheaper and get higher deployed. And their variable and intermittent nature need to be coupled in some way. Now, vehicle to grid types of things where batteries on cars would basically take electricity off and send electricity back are things that people talk about. But the nominal value of that electricity be compared to the value of having the charge in your car when you want it is so small that you almost have to create an entire different infrastructure to hold that energy with an extra battery pack. So it's not like you're just buying a battery pack to, to, to run your vehicle. It's almost like you're buying a battery pack so that you can charge your battery when you want to and you can balance the grid. With hydrogen, you can take the excess capacity off of the grid, convert it into fuel, store it for long duration time periods, and use it to run vehicles, but then also to make steel, to um, make ammonia, to do a bunch of other things that electricity can't do directly. So the carbon aspect of it's real. If we look at a future that's really highly driven by green sources, the footprints for both are very small, but it's the infrastructure cost, it's the amount of transmission and, and storage, and moving energy as chemical bonds in hydrogen or taking the hydrogen and making fuels or other chemical bonds um, is much more energy dense than dealing strictly with electricity. So there's a bunch of different complicated balancing factors that will play out in terms of how the balance and the slice of the pie works in, in different markets. Different markets being uh, one of the keys to this whole thing, you know, Japan, China, uh, Europe, especially Germany, are moving ahead quickly with developing a, a hydrogen infrastructure. So, uh, you know, how do we get the U.S. on board? You um, know, Calif California is moving. You're, I mean, you know, and, and the thing is, is that the vision had always been kind of um, a, uh, a hub and spokes type of thing. It, it, it's what makes sense. And you can talk about the different markets where hydrogen and fuel cells work. So the one place in the U.S. that has tons of hydrogen working in it is in um, forklifts. So if you have a large distribution center for Amazon or Walmart, you can handle that. And you did it because you can bring in one liquid tanker of hydrogen and service this facility for a few days and you have a captive fleet. And so then you can talk about tethered fleets. Ports um, are hugely um polluting areas in major urban centers and they offer, you know, kind of this tethered approach. And then you can go to the predictable things. And, you know, Nicola is talking about a model where they'll put 400 stations across the country and know where they're at buses, other types of things like that. The hardest in the last is going to be kind of the random model where all of our gas stations are today. And, you know, trying to get to that number isn't necessarily required to get the same coverage, but getting complete coverage is critical to basically having something that's ubiquitous. And that's gonna take longer um, and it's gonna have some limitations. And so the places that are doing this first, like Japan, like Germany, 
like California um, are going to be able to do more in this space. Um, but the production costs of hydrogen are actually pretty low now. It is this distribution and storage cost that's really the issue. And with scale, all of that gets much improved. Brian, you talked earlier about, you know, sort of an all of above uh, situation per Frank's question on distribution and the like. What do you think of Nikola's idea of making hydrogen on site and then you eliminate all the the, the, the pipeline or the trucking needs? It, it, you know, it, it, it works if, if it works. Right. I mean, it, it all comes down to the economics. And as things get larger, um, you get more more opportunities. I mean, so if you think about how natural gas systems evolved, it was individual cities doing it just for their independent needs, and then they became connected. Um, if you think about the hydrogen pipeline, basically the hydrogen pipeline serves as a backup for the steam methane reforming of hydrogen capacity of different refineries and ammonia production plants. So it became cost competitive to basically hook these things together so that they connected. And, you know, you know, so, so hydrogen needs things still. It needs more to be done in making. So, so we talk about uh, hydrogen at scale vision. Uh, it's led by the Department of Energy and the Hydrogen and Fuel Cells Technologies Office has done a great job of championing this through the years. It's focused on making, moving, using and storing hydrogen cheaper. And, you know, the national labs are playing a big role in trying to make all of those things happen. And as they evolve and as we basically see how we can do things, we have a project called High Blend, which is looking at how we can use the natural gas system to blend hydrogen in it to either reduce the carbon content or use it as a vector for moving hydrogen around. We don't know all of the ways in which hydrogen will evolve to do this. And we haven't taken on all the technical challenges to basically make it get to where it is. However, we know that by 2030, we have to get these things done the country and the planet kind of require it. Brian, what's your take on some of these ideas about uh, turning hydrogen into uh, ammonia, moving the ammonia and then cracking it back? Because that's, you know, NH3, it's, it's, there's less to do with that than cracking it from natural gas or something like that. Yeah, and, and, and that's a great question. And there's places like Japan and Australia where um, Japan doesn't have the natural energy resources and Australia is flush with them to supply a lot of Asia. And so when you start talking about tankers and other things, ammonia has a lot of sense. And, and it's because you can get the nitrogen really easily out of the air by separating it. You can react that nitrogen with hydrogen you've made with electrolysis by Haber-Bosch to make the ammonia. And then you can move it. So the question is, is that you can also liquefy the hydrogen. You can compress the hydrogen. What's the most economic way to do it? One of the advantages for ammonia is, is that a lot of times when it gets to the end destination, you can just use it as ammonia. So it, could, it, it again becomes a fungible material where it could be, hey, we're using this for fertilizer. We're also using it as a combustion material or we're actually cracking it back to hydrogen. And then we can just let the nitrogen go. There's also some other liquid organic hydrogen um, carriers that basically have cycles. So, um, you know, basically going from um, a hydrogenated to a non-hydrogenated molecule and back again, where you basically, you know, start in Australia with this dehydrogenated version of it, hydrogenate it there, bring it to Japan, dehydrogenate it, and then, and then send it back again. So there's a bunch of different couples and it's, you know, if you're, 
on land, a lot of times pipes make the most sense. But when you talk about longer distances and you don't have land, then you start thinking about tankers and what are the right solutions for it and how we move energy today, you know, in crude oil and other things. And so there's a lot of parallels with how we'll end up moving this energy later on. And all of this is going on. And there's comparisons being made between the different options. Brian, at the top of the show, you mentioned that uh, we are reaching a tipping point, but it's maybe not the automotive industry that's driving it. What other industries are getting into hydrogen? So so the biggest thing that's happened for me in the last um, three to five years has been the Hydrogen Council. So the Hydrogen Council now is about up to 100 companies, and they uh, have all most of the major oil companies. They have OEMs for vehicles, um, and these industries... You know, and what's happened more recently is they've also had investors. So if you look at what's happening in the investment community in hydrogen, it's um, remarkable. Um, you know, you see billions of dollars now being played in spaces that nobody would ever consider it before. And in the last six months, there's been this huge consolidation. And a lot of it's focused on electrolysis companies because they're perceived as being the ones who can help deliver this fuel. So places like Cummins, you know, they basically bought Hydrogenics, which was a fuel cell and an electrolysis company to basically expand their portfolio. You see Plug Power um, purchasing Giener. Um, you, you see others, you know, um, making purchases in, in other smaller electrolysis companies like ITM, Nell Hydrogen's grown in size. And so all of these different world leaders in this space have now been much more active. And, you know, so this this the technology that goes into an electrolysis system is, is very parallel to what goes into a fuel cell system. So there's some overlap there. It's not one-to-one. Um, me personally, um, I have 25 years of fuel cell experience, and now I lead the major U.S. effort for advancing the technology of electrolysis through a new consortium from DOE that's called H2New. And so there's been this transition recognizing that they're connected, they're both related, and there's a lot of R&D things that need to take this technology and move it forward. So those are different pieces that are moving forward right now. But but there are also oddly OEMs who are involved in this. You know, automakers wouldn't have gotten behind uh, putting a gas station on every corner, but they are involved uh, in developing this hydrogen infrastructure. Yeah. So that's a change. Brian, do you expect uh, any change? Are you getting any inklings with the Biden administration coming in? Might this accelerate this move to hydrogen and fuel cells? So um, there were three things in Biden, the, the president-elect's plan, where he had mentioned hydrogen. Um, green hydrogen um, and green, green hydrogen, meaning green hydrogen from electrolysis with renewable energy sourcing. Uh, there's all these different colors of hydrogen. And you can also do things like um, carbon sequestration from steam methane reformed hydrogen to make it blue. And then there's kind of just steam methane reforming with, without any sort of sequestration as well. But for the first time, uh, hydrogen's made that type of a document and, and been talked about at that kind of level. It's early to see. Um, I would expect that because of the attributes of hydrogen, how it fits into the energy system and the importance of it, because not only is it important kind of from this end use clean side, it also helps allow for more economic deployment of renewables at larger scale. So, so it's, it's this big connecting piece for the cross-sectoral part of it. And it's largely been missed because how, how siloed some of the thought process has been. If you just think about 
Transportation, hydrogen doesn't shine as well. If you just think about the grid, hydrogen doesn't shine as well. But when you put the grid, industry, and transportation together, all of a sudden, hydrogen. And, and so all of these pieces come together to basically say, as we go further and further down this road to make a planet more and more sustainable, if we care more or value emissions more, then things like hydrogen can basically enable all the things that we need to do. You know, we've talked a lot about hydrogen. We're getting down to the end here. What about fuel cells? I mean, they're the, the engines that use it as a fuel. So um, they've had remarkable advances. However, um, when, when, when I started in this, it was always not sure if they'd be able to be commercially viable. The costs of fuel cell power plants now are getting low enough that they're getting close to internal combustion engines. And that's done. Um, how well they'll be able to do things like go um, million miles. So we have another DOE consortium that's called the Million Mile Fuel Cell Truck Consortium. Mm -hmm. And so it switches the economics because uh, a Class 8 truck costs three more times for the fuel than it does for the capital cost of the vehicle. But light-duty vehicles are about one-to-one. -one. And so you can put more money into the capital of the vehicle because the fuel is such a driving force and total cost of ownership is more important rather than kind of a capital cost purchase for a consumer. So making sure that we get durability and performance advances is still a really important thing because that just continues to open up the market and the national labs and the Department of Energy and the Hydrogen Fuel Cell Technologies Office continue to do those things and more is needed. Um, you know, but right now, technical viability of the fuel cell, they're great vehicles, they're great manufacturing capabilities. Um, creating fuel cell power plants is now something that's becoming more commoditized on the planet and won't be the limitation. Storage could always be improved and distribution costs are, are, are more of the key sticking points. And then some of these challenges about how you make a vehicle that lasts five times as long. Um, and, and drives five times further than what would happen in a light-duty vehicle is, is, is an ongoing challenge as well. And yeah, drives you know, at extremely low temperature, too. That's a, another slight sticking point, right? Right. Yeah, right. Hey, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut you off there. We've run out of time here. But, Brian, thanks so much for coming on the show. Bob and Frank, thanks to you guys as well. Very interesting discussion. Really appreciate it, John. Thank you. AutoLine This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.